it basically comes down to pallet weight versus a sort of uh, an energy. The energetic styles is, is I think, where our properly cutting edge producers are, where the wines are incredibly pure, incredibly vivid, sometimes even ethereal, mm-hmm. and, and, and they tend to be low in alcohol and bone dry. Hello, my name is David Clark, and welcome to the Ex Animo podcast, where we tell you the stories of South African wine. Although there are no hard and fast rules about the content we post, mostly the podcast contains long-form interviews with key figures in the South African wine industry. Today on the podcast, we have Christian Eads of winemag.coza, a wine website that was born out of a magazine published in South Africa from 1993 to 2011. Uh, They post uh, multiple articles every day. Their tagline is, everything to do with South African fine wine. Christian is, to my mind, one of the most important voices in South African wine criticism. Uh, This week saw the annual State of the Nation Address, or SONA, S-O-N-A for short, by the South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. And I wanted to get Christian's opinions of the State of of the Nation's fine wine. Uh, Christian is certainly one of the most knowledgeable and widely tasted people in the South African uh, wine industry over the last three decades. He brings a context and a perspective that can only be gained over many years of submersion. We did one of these chats in February 2020, just as the COVID pandemic was starting to develop. I will link that conversation in the notes. It might be an interesting listen to listen to that one and then this one or this one and then that one. Thank you for listening. I give you Christian Eads. So I'm here with uh, Christian Eads for State of the Nation Address Wine Edition. Uh, hello, Christian. How are you? David, I'm very well, thank you. Cool, man. Uh, we did one, I think it was 2019. Was it 2019 or 2018? I can't remember now. Uh, certainly pre-COVID. Yeah. Was it just before COVID? Was it 2020, maybe? Uh, well, we still had an Air Force, because I remember the grip and fly pass in the middle that's of right. it. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll do some research and then I'll insert the year here. We did it in year... February 2020. Perfect. <laughs> so obviously a lot to talk about, um, you know, pre-COVID, so at least two years since we've we've taken a sort of a big look at the industry at large. So maybe, uh, have, have you given it as much thought? I certainly just, have. I yeah. think, I think. Well, I maybe to start with your broad thoughts and, and go from there. I think, you know, we're all trying to plot the way forward. Um, I think the short answer is no, nobody knows. The COVID's sort of still playing itself out. We still have a very depressed tourism sector, which the wine industry depends on significantly, certainly the fine wine end of the industry. Exports are up and down. Um, I mean, there were good, surprisingly good uh, last year given that COVID was still very much in, in play. But, you know, what are the long-term trends in that regard? Difficult to, to analyze. What's happening on the ground in terms of vineyard plantings, vineyard uprootings? Um, I suspect we're going to see even more attrition. So it's... How much have we seen so far? What's your estimates on that? Or are there, are there actual figures coming out? I mean, well, I, we I, wait, I don't we, keep up to speed with that sort of stuff. Uh, so, so we're waiting on SARS uh, to report back on 21, which should be shortly. I mean, okay. when I say shortly, in the next quarter or so. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as is widely documented, we've lost 10% of plantings in the last 10 years, approximately. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that trend is just going to continue. I don't think COVID would have helped much with making, keeping vineyard in the ground. And on the grand scheme of things, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the South African wine industry? 
I mean, I, you know, the argument has been made that the industry needed to right size in any event. But, you know, there are growers and their workers who are losing their livelihoods. Um, so it's not pretty. I mean, it might be ultimately the right thing for the industry, but it's not a, it's not a fun process to watch. Yeah, obviously, individual, individually, there's, you know, horror stories and, you know, great news stories along the board. But I'm sort of more zooming out macro. I mean, the, the argument's been made to me that not many good vineyards are staying in the ground. It's only the sort of the marginal ones or... Sure, I mean, I mean if you, in big picture, the, you know, grapes are a commodity like, agricultural commodity like potatoes are. And, you know, if there's a swing to more appropriate plantings of more appropriate crops, then it's inevitable. Yeah, um, so be it. Yeah, and so be it. Okay. Um, and away from COVID, what's happening in your mind with the South African wine style? I mean, two years ago versus now? I mean, has there been a, a flourishing of new producers, new wines, or a change of directions? Has there been much shift, or has it been pretty static? It's well documented that in times of uh, stress, um, consumers go back to the trial and tested because uh, they're looking for comfort and reliability. And, and I think that has been the case to some extent. So, you know, the very well-established blue chip brands um, with good distribution networks are probably doing okay. And I'm talking specifically about domestic, domestic you know, mm. scenario. I think there are probably still some very brave, romantic youngsters out there who are trying to make their way in the industry. And hopefully we'll see, you know, they tend to come up with fairly uh, exciting, unconventional stuff. And, and hopefully that will continue to be the case despite COVID. Um, I think it's tough out there. I think it's you know, must have been disheartening if you were straight out of uh, Stellenbosch and about to launch your own brand. Um, it, it, <laughs> it's going to be lost uh, 24 months must have been fairly scary. I'd have to maybe disagree with you, or not disagree with you, but maybe question you on the fact that the, obviously the wisdom is that you know during times of turmoil the status quo remains, but I think during times of turmoil, especially with the lockdowns uh, and the alcohol ban specifically, uh, people couldn't necessarily get the brand of their choice um, during the alcohol bans. And so, you know, there was a, a significant black market industry that, that grew out of those, you know, four lockdown periods and people got what they could get. They weren't necessarily sport for choice. So I think maybe the opposite actually happened in, in a lot of regard that people were forced to drink outside of their normal uh, range or spectrum because they just couldn't get hold of those wines. So, so I think it, that's a matter of speculation in the sense yeah. that, I mean, I mean, no doubt there was a lot of bootlegging. Um, apparently the black markets exploded, um, which is not great uh, in, in any sense. But, you know, were, were people being more experimental or were they drinking whatever they could get their hands on? No, no, no. I think, I think the, the latter for sure. But I think what it has done is led to people being more experimental coming out of yeah. it and saying, actually, trying different wines and is actually an, an interesting way to spend my time. You know, as I said at the outset, there are a lot of um, new market trends and, and some of them are conflicting. Mm. And, I mean, to your point, I think, I think a lot of people switched to home drinking and therefore uh, were able to spend a little more on compared to what they were doing pre-COVID and realized that trading up wasn't necessarily such a bad idea. And i.e. for relatively little extra money, you got a lot of extra bang for your back, a lot of extra quality. Yeah, right. Okay. And in terms of 
producers and, and distributors submit samples to WineMag. Uh, obviously, ad hoc samples, but obviously, you put the calls out for your uh, uh, wine reports, um, varietally uh, specific wine reports. Uh, what's been the, the trend on those for the last couple of years, both the, the ad hoc samples? I'm pleased to say that in terms of what arrived uh, at WineMag, was not unduly affected by COVID. Both the established players plus the more new wave avant-garde guys were and girls were busy sending their stuff as as much as as much as ever, which was gratifying. And and again, you know, having said that, I think COVID has probably throttled back some of the more experimental fringe stuff. My sense is that the well-established producers are have to date pretty much weathered the storm. So I think, you know, your strength of brand is, it's a cliche, but wherever you sit in the marketplace, survival, uh, dependent on, on, on how well you're able to manage your brand. Um, and, you know, I think that's... And so do you think with the, um, and there was some vicious discounting going on throughout the, especially when, the, when people couldn't go out to restaurants and a lot of avenues to sell wine were, were closed, and one response of that for certain part of the market was to viciously discount their wines. Do you think they'll live to regret that? Do you think the fact well, that they're living, <laughs> they're continuing, is the, is the key there? Or what's, well, I mean, what's, the, what's I, the fallout of know, that? I mean, the short answer is not ideal, but when, when the devil drives needs must. I mean, you don't want to be sitting on tons of stock. We're going into harvest 2022 as we speak. You know, as I say, not ideal, but I can understand why people were driven to that. Yeah, but my point really is, does it towards your you're saying you know the brand reputation versus heavy discounting those two things don't seem to no of course not to and, blend. I, you know, so, and, and, yeah, and you have to choose one or the other exactly. essentially yeah it's an interesting one do you think those heavy discounting will have a, a a lasting impact on on those brands or do you think people will write it off as a as a covid necessity well, hopefully the latter, but possibly yeah. the former. Yeah. I mean, do you have an opinion? No, I, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it, you know, time will tell. And I think what I, what I was saying about brands is whether you're a well-established blue chip, old school, old guard, or whether you're new wave, new on the scene, knowing your place in the market, servicing your usual customers as, as well as you could under the circumstances, you know, I think that will prove to be crucial. And as we sort of ease out of COVID, there's a sense that the operators that stuck to their guns on just being visible, because of course we couldn't go to restaurants and we couldn't go shopping. And how, you know, by, by that I think social media was pretty crucial. And then of course, direct to consumer and having a coherent DTC offering was important. And some uh, operators got it right and, some, and others didn't. And so back to your question about discounting, that's probably not the end of the world. You know, I think it was just important to keep you know, money coming in, you know, keep, keep cash flow rolling. I mean, you brought up the, the direct-to-consumer avenue, which a lot of people, a lot of uh, industry has moved into. It's been a, a, a visible shift. Um, I mean, you're on an e-internet platform. Uh, maybe expand on, on e-commerce and the wine industry and, and if it's changed or if it's changing or you're part of it or how you see it. What's your, so, your take on it all? So... Basically, not to be too glib or too simplistic. Oh, I like glib. I like simplistic. And at least I can understand it and relate to it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, the, the short answer is, is, is COVID 
basically massively accelerated a process that was happening anyway. Um, okay. And you know, the, the wine industry being notoriously slow moving, perhaps some operators will look back and go, COVID was precisely the kick in the pants that I needed. And I mean, why is D2C so important? Well, it's taking out links in the value chain, you know, unnecessary links in the value chain that, that, that we all know so and, uh, inefficient for, and, and contrary to the well-being of the industry. Well, being part of that uh, middleman group, I would uh, viciously disagree, obviously. <laughs> obviously, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't believe we were doing uh, a service and, and adding value. Yeah, well, one of the big things that I thought that D2C and the e-commerce thing was to uh, um, command the narrative around, and it goes back to brand awareness and and uh, and building the brand. That was uh, really important. I think we we actually almost understand more about different brands in South Africa, different producers now because they've been ex- been more exposed to to the public eye, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, and that has to, that, that has to be a good thing, surely. Absolutely agree. And I mean, you know, let's take X Animo. X Animo didn't have a straight to consumer offering, which it now does. I think what we're seeing is, you know, you talk about controlling the narrative, whether you're a producer, a distributor, a retailer, you, you, you know, you've got to embrace content creation, you've got to embrace um, sales, you know, we all need to be good at everything. And I suppose one thing about COVID is we all had a, a, a lot of downtimes to wrestle with these issues. Um, and making pretty decent wine also helps. No, for sure. And I think, you know, one thing that hasn't changed is um, good enough is not good enough. I mean, one thing that was apparent all through COVID, which <laughs> the downtime also gave us a lot more uh, you know, the, the opportunity for day drinking and, um, <laughs> and, and something. Which, which, which some of us um, um, uh, chased with gusto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, or embraced with gusto, I should say. Um, and, 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 you know, my overall impression is, you know, once again, how quite extraordinarily high South African wine quality is. And, you know, if you're not putting out properly top quality booze, you're going to be an also around. Let's just stick on that for a second, because um, on the good news side of the ledger, what are the, the, the best, in terms of your opinion, the most competitive uh, in terms of value versus quality uh, style and price points in South African wine at the moment? What, what springs to mind? I mean, if someone says, oh, I'm going to buy six bottles of South African wine... So f- f- forgive me, I'm going to come at that in a roundabout way. Yeah, that's what, what, I think, what I think is super exciting is that inevitably you've got different factions, and maybe factions is too strong a word, but you know, you've got Stellenbosch Cabernet versus Swartland Shannon versus Hinlan Arda Pinot. Um, and it makes sense that everybody plays to their strengths or the individual regions play to their strengths. Mm-hmm. And, and then as one region and all variety gains prominence that, that compels everybody else to raise their game. You know, I, I have a sense that just about everything's on an upward trajectory. Depending on your budget, you can find value almost universally, which is really, you know, it's a huge feather in the cap of the laughing wine industry. And, a, and, and if you're a wine enthusiast, you're, you're sitting pretty. So you wouldn't necessarily like isolate Shannon as mid 100 rand sort of retail price then as a hot spot well, for, well I, th- I, think we, I think I think you can't go wrong almost or you know Sauvignon at you know 120 above or something like, I, don't, I don't know I don't want to put words in your mouth but no no I think I think we, uh, to your I mean, question so, I think saying everything's rosy and everything's amazing doesn't really I, 
doesn't really make a lot of sense, it seems. I, I think that we're getting our tiering, the industry's getting its tiering much, much better. Again, across all categories. By which I mean to say that if your budget only allows up to 150 Rand, you're going to find wine that completely delivers and over delivers quality relative to price. You know, if you're up to 300 Across Rand. all styles, though? I mean, uh, that's um, what I'm sort of getting at. What's the entry point for a, a really decent um, Stellenbosch Cabernet? So, Cab, you know, I don't think you would want to shop under 200 Rand for Stellenbosch Cab. Okay. Um, not to say that there isn't anything below 200 Rand. But then you have to make a, a more careful selection. Yeah, then you have to... Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's exactly the, the question yeah. I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. At what point are you super comfortable almost just pulling off the shelf? And obviously, p- cost isn't always correlated with quality. I understand that, but yeah, there is some sort of correlation. And then Swatland Shannon was the other one you pulled out. So, so, so Shannon is a special case, and as I think is well known, I am a huge champion of the category. I mean, it, it is our most widely planted variety. It grows everywhere. Bit of a weed, but more of a weed than any of the other varieties. Just slightly. I mean, it's twenty percent of pl- entire planting. So, so it's, it's a. Um, and there, you really are spoiled for choice. There's fabulous quaffing Shannon from the former co-ops. That's under 100 bucks. And there's very good old vine Shannon, circa 150 bucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, all the way up to, you know, what Yevon is doing with- One would assume then, and then for Shannon, um, because it is so ubiquitous, then it would lie on all points of the spectrum quality-wise. Is that true or not? Like, is there bad Shannon out there as well yeah. as really good stuff, or is it all pretty I, good? No, I think- In I general, th- I mean, obviously there's gonna no, be- No, so, so I think there's a lot of Shannon that ends up as generic dry white, and it gets yeah. sold in bulk, and that's why it was planted. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm talking about things labeled as Shannon Blanc. Yeah. Um, there's, there's so many Shannon offerings out there, so, I mean, you have to proceed with some caution. But, yeah. I mean, you almost can't go wrong. I think the fact that Sauvignon and Chard still outsell Shannon in, in broad commercial terms, is that Shannon bizarrely still has this residual stigma attached to it, mm-hmm. which is surely by now unjustified. I'd be much more cautious about buying an 80 Rand bottle of Sauvignon Blanc than an 80 Rand bottle of Shannon. Uh, are the best Shannon Blancs in South Africa necessarily dry, or a little bit of residual sugar doesn't hurt them, or are you, what's your opinion on that sort of side of things? Uh, I mean, you know, Shannon appears in all shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. you know, all levels of, of residual sugar. That makes it particularly geeky and very satisfying if you're a geek to sort of contemplate bone dry next to semi-sweet next to off dry next to noble date you know as is well debated you know it's not ideal for the average consumer in the sense that mrs smith pushing her trolley through the supermarket doesn't necessarily know what she's going home with i would agree with you on the the super sweet and the super dry but i don't don't find there's that many semi-sweet or off dry shannons bottled well, I mean, anymore. Like, I, mean, I, I wouldn't uh, think that that's even a much of an issue for South African Shannon. No, no. Uh, so, so, I mean, in, in a sort of in a strict Loire sense, you know, you, you're not going to find too much at sort of 30 grams. But, yeah. but there's certainly examples going up, not a huge number, but, you yeah. know, uh, over five up to 10, 12, but there are quite a few examples, aren't there? Yeah, right. So a perceptible yeah. sweetness yeah. rather than yeah. just, yeah, okay. And is that is it only perceptible to you, do you think? I mean, or, or the industry that, you know, something has like nine grams of... No, RS, I, 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 think, I think at the very, at the very top of the, of the Shannon pyramid there's a very interesting stylistic divide that's starting to happen. So you've got the relatively old school 
big rich style with mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of botrytis and maybe a dash of RSO when I say a dash three to five grams yeah. and a bit of new wood maybe or no nothing most necessary. people have stepped away from here okay um, but it basically comes down to palate weight versus a sort of uh, an energy the energetic styles is, is I think where our properly cutting edge producers are where the wines are incredibly pure incredibly vivid sometimes even ethereal mm-hmm. and, and they tend to be low in alcohol and bone dry and picking dates is a huge factor there um, but not the only factor and, and, and it's quite interesting because I think both styles have their proponents it's going to be fascinating to see you know who predominates in, in, over the next couple of years and so if I understand you correctly this sort of high energy sort of high tension maybe to throw in another word is that a relatively new style of Shannon at the top end? To my mind and to my palate, yes. I okay. mean, when I say I mean new, I'm saying certainly that, that no longer than the last five years. Yeah. Or circa okay. the last five years. Okay. Um, and I think it's, to my mind, what's, go- what's happening there is this move towards transparency and, and the winemaker trying to extract him, himself or herself as much as possible from the vineyards. And I think we have to give credit to the, the old vine project because... You know, if you're working with 35-year-old vineyards or, or older, or, and much older, um, you know, why do you want to go and put your thumbprint all over the, the resulting wine? And so by that logic, and I'm you know, terrible at logic, the more traditional style of richer and heavier would be decreasing? Examples? Or? Um, no, no, I think, and I think they're still very well rewarded by all, by all critics, local and international. I yeah. think there's a market segment that loves them and is a bit bemused by this lighter, more, you know, nerdy, tense style. Okay. Um, so I think for the meantime, they're going to both exist mm-hmm. side by side. But I know which one I prefer to drink. <laughs> it sounds like a, almost like a bit of a pendulum swing uh, from, from what you've described it as, sort of, you know, going from one to the exact opposite. Will, do you think the, the boar will oscillate between the two over time and you'll find, do you, do you find many top shenanigans trying to do a little bit of both or is it really quite polarised? No, I, th- I, think, I think the pendulum of fashion is always in swing, so to speak. I can see both style. I certainly don't want to suggest one's definitely more legitimate than the other. And what will become super interesting is the different uh, houses or, or um, sellers or get better and better and better. I mean, mm. again, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's part of the continuing increase in quality is, is that sort of healthy sense of competition that, that, that's always pervaded. It's really quite gratifying and enthralling and to, to see how there's this just constant desire to improve. And, and I think it's everybody egging each other on in the, in the most healthy way. Um, um, and then you mentioned Imelin Arapinua. Infamously, famously, most people think that you're, and I think you're on record as saying it's not your most favourite style of South African wine. Is that, is that a fair, just to put that out there? Is that fair or not? No, I, I don't want to um, um, beat up on him on either. I, I'm, yeah. I just remain sceptical of South African Pinot. Yeah. Um, and I don't really like taking up intransible positions because there's always a wine around the corner that's going to make one eat one's words. But I have to say, I more often than not find Slavic Pinot slightly unconvincing. 
especially given that it demands such a premium. And, yeah, uh, so yeah, this is the other part. Is that um, it, it comes at a cost, yeah, doesn't it? And, like, is that, and, is that, and is that part of the issue? That yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think it's a bit... My role as a critic is to guide the consumer to, to quality and value. And I don't... I think very often South African peanut doesn't offer value. So certainly, I mean, it's not a massive category. It's a very small category in the in the South African context. So we have to get that out of the way. It's not going to. It doesn't move the needle in terms of the, um, yeah, but, the total GDP of wine in, in South Africa. But but as Paul, Paul Cuvier, a, a notable yeah. Pinot Noir producer, points out, mm. you know, Burgundy is not very big, yet, and, and yet it demands a lot of the world's attention, wine world's attention. Yeah. But there's producers that produce Emonada Pinot with a, a, a very famous South African recognised brands. I mean, Boucher Finlayson, Hamilton Russell, Cristallum, Storm, uh, Newton Johnson. I mean, these are all names that would be recognised around the world um, in wine circles, not necessarily everyday drinking circles. Um, so there must be something to it. Yeah, so, I mean, Pinot around the world has this mystique about it, that mm. this unquantifiable mystique. And, unquantifiable know, mystique, you think? Well, I'm, I, in my, 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 my few encounters with Romani Conti, I would humbly suggest that the hype is, is legit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whereas... I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they're wiping the sweat off their brow. <laughs> <laughs> I got the uh, thumbs up from you, mate. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, they didn't fly me over for the entrepreneur tasting. Um, so good luck to the names that you mentioned for leveraging it. Typically, they all make Chardonnay as well because they're in love with Burgundy and Burgundy's the benchmark and they want to emulate Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And the Chardonnays are fantastic and, okay, and much more convincing uh, and, okay. and uh, compelling. And yeah. Okay, that's an interesting yeah. uh, point because I was going to say, well, bringing it back to the consumer, the consumer's obviously convinced and as a consumer guide, then therefore you have to at least take notice of them and, and give them uh, due consideration. But you think perhaps that the Chardonnays are the, uh, yeah, so are the bitter bit. wines overall. I mean, obviously individual um, uh, results may vary. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe move into Chardonnay then. Just quickly finishing off on Pinot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, producers are beguiled with it, but so are consumers. So yeah. Chardonnay, because one, because it's a wide but, variety. But, but this critic isn't. Given that I'm a um, Southern Hemisphere-based uh, wine writer rather than financial services or, or um, IT or medicine, um, I'm not really in a position to drink a hell of a lot of uh, Premier or Grand Cru. But when I do, I get what all the fuss is about. Okay. And the price differential between Premier and Grand Cru Burgundy and you know, the equivalent uh, in the hierarchy of South African Pinot Noir doesn't sort of okay, so, make so, sense? So sorry would, to harp on it. I no, 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 no. And, and, so, it's, sorry it's, to the listeners. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, um, those, those that are still awake. <laughs> yeah. no, so the thing is, um, you know, is SA Pinot good value relative to Premier Cru Burgundy? Probably. The way I look at it is, if you're good for 500, 600 rand a bottle on, on a South African wine, I'd urge you to go and look at Serenwash Cab, Swatland Syrah, um, and, and you're going to get exponentially more bang for your buck. Okay, that's a, that's, that's a point my way. Moving into Chardonnay then. What's your state of the nation on, on South African Chardonnay? Who's, who's doing well? Is the, are the stylistics changed in the same sort of manner as so Shannon perhaps? I think I, to, to my mind, Chardonnay in a, in, a, in a great place. I still wonder why we seem to make better white wine than red wine. And I, I think red wine's made tremendous strides forward, but I think it still applies. 
our whites are generally better than our reds, lead, you know, bottle for bottle, liter for liter. And, and shard being white is right up there. But I don't think that's the only explanation. Again, I think it's one of the world's most prestigious categories, or by, I mean, varieties, slash varieties. And if you're going to make a top-end shard, you can't muck around. So whether you're operating out of Stenomosh or Elgin or Hilmer and Arda, it's game on. And I think the overall quality is fabulous. I mean, it's, there's some very astute viticulture, very astute winemaking. I think what's interesting is that uh, stylistically, there's, a, there's more commonality. And I think over the recent times, the industry's moved to a, a fairly linear style. Uh, you know, new oak is skewed, massive batonage is skewed, which I think is in line with global trends. That said, it's curious to me that every now and again, there's feedback from the market going, please bring back that big battery style. And, and then when I say from the market, from this relatively discerning wine drinkers. So it's curious to me. It's like, are producers missing a trick? Is there, is there a place for that, you know, much more thick uh, uh, textured, um, yellow-fruited shard of yesterday? I don't know. Interesting. So, less diversity of styles at the top end, at least. Uh, yeah, in, 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 in broad terms. In broad yeah. terms. Okay. So, so in other words, Shannon, for example, as, as an example. Yeah, no, so Shannon, it's all, all over yeah. the show. Whereas yeah. Shard is it's a much tighter stylistic spectrum. Why do you think that is? Do you think because the, the playbook for Chardonnay has been sort of written around the world and it's a, a bit more of a, a term, or is it the, sort of the availability of Chenin Blanc? Uh, because it's, there's so much of it here, it's you know you can get you can get it relatively cheap. Where Chardonnay is, you buy it at, buy grapes at a premium, so you're going to take less risks. Or is it all, all of these things combined plus more? I'm sure the answer is. I think you've you've t- touched on all the explanations. Yeah. I mean, mm. uh, I, I think Shannon because of it's grown across such a diversity of of terroirs. I use the word advisedly. Inevitably, gives you a wide range of expressions. Whereas Shard, you know, it's Elgin, Hill and Ida, and you know, some sites in Stellenbosch, normally at altitude or maritime. So straight away, we, 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 um, we're going to get a more, a narrower sort of fruits spectrum. A narrower um, field, yeah. Yeah, narrow yeah. field of, of and, but I mean, you mentioned the global playbook, you know, it's, if, if, um, Oz and if Burgundy and Oz are, are not doing malolactic, then we're not going to do malolactic either. And as has been documented, it's not net, you know, you, you can become too lean and, and uh, tense. Um, mm-hmm. So it's something constantly ponder. At what point does elegant become uh, lean and mean? <laughs> so we'll stay with white for the moment. Sauvignon Blanc, where are we at with Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa? So I think at the very top end, it's there's a nice sense of experimentation happening and when I, and by that I mean more uh, barrel fermented, more oxidative handling, more unusual sites or extreme sites, maybe not, I mean, not unsuited to Sauvignon, but really pushing the envelope in terms of where, where the vineyards are located. But unfortunately, I think that's a very small fraction of, of, of what's going on in the category. I think there seems to be some premiumization happening, mm-hmm. which has got to be good for producers. I.e., there was for a long time there was a hundred rand a bottle um, glass ceiling, and now there's quite a lot of Sauvignon that's 
certainly 150, 160 a bottle, and in some approaching 200 and over. Well, there's some, yeah, 300 and plus as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting for, for me, I think it was 2020 vintage, that three of the producers I work with bought out some very interesting um, Sauvignon blocks. So Restless River bought out one under their Wanderlust label. Trezan bought out the Sundbach's Cliff, and then John, uh, second from Thorn and Daughters, brought out his um, um, Citrus Dull Mountain Sauvignon Blanc. All three with a sort of a, a level of skin contact. And they were all very premiumly priced and sold out very well. I mean, Trezan's won the, the Platters Sauvignon of the Year that year, um, which I'm not sure a skin contact white has done that before. Because it wasn't labelled or marketed as a skin contact white, but it was. A, there was a certain uh, a big percentage of skin content and that what was your take on that has that had an impact in the rest of the Sauvignon Blanc market or are people just following those producers and they just have they, they're drinking them because it happens to be no Sauvignon no that's precisely my point about um, a more adventurous attitude at the top end I mean I, I mm. mentioned it but has that bled in to the yeah I think it certainly is that, okay. uh, you know a, a name that comes to mind is Pierre Rabi who's an mm-hmm. advocate by day and a, a garage youth winemaker by night mm-hmm. or at the, at the weekend yes and and he's uh, so so you know as I said it's it's, it's about it's about both so and he op, he's he's working with Elam Fruit which is a very interesting area for Savignon very promising area has been for a while and somebody like Pierre and the and the three that you mentioned you know it's 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 natural ferments it's skin contact it's non stainless steel non reductive and the wines that are fabulous. Um, I'm, you know, there's a stigma attached to Sauvignon about it being so boring, and these, these certainly aren't. And they're fascinating wines, deeply rewarding wines, uh, which poses the question, is that what punters are looking for when it comes to Sauvignon? You know, there's still a large, a huge amount of Sauvignon that's made, even from very serious producers, that's made in that very overtly green, highly acidic style. Maybe not quite as uh, uh, cynical and boring as yesteryear, but in a... In a then you're turning it into a commodity again, aren't you? you sort yeah, of no, but, then you, but I, think, I think why it carries on succeeding is that yeah. it works as a summertime beverage. And, you know, South Africa is a warm climate country and, yeah. and you can serve it at 0 degrees Celsius and it will, it'll, it'll still taste of something. You can put ice in it, you can still taste of something. Yeah, yeah. You can put soda in it, it'll still taste of something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your next door neighbor can open it and you can still taste it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, other white varieties? Uh, along the spectrum, I mean, those three, Chardonnay, Chenin, and and, um, and Sauvignon uh, take up the bulk of premium fine wine in South Africa. Uh, Semillon, um, obviously a very historic variety, and there's a whole bunch of other Rhone varieties that are coming in, some other heritage varieties like, <coughs> pardon me, uh, Palmino, maybe, you know, what's your take on the okay, so quote, in, 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 alternative in, in, varieties? In quick succession, I, I think Sen whether it be old vine, Franschuk, Swatland, or relatively new vineyards, maritime vineyards, is a fantastically good little niche category. The big challenge for SEM uh, proponents is selling the stuff. For some reason, it seems to have very little traction in the marketplace. But essentially... Um, so a few wines dominate the Semillon sort of landscape yeah, not, and then not, beyond not, that... Not even, it's just... I, yeah. I, I, think, I think the thing is, sem, whatever style it's made in, it's quite an intellectually challenging single variety. It makes for quite an intellectually challenging single variety wine. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. I, c I can't actually give you a good answer as to why it's not more popular. How much do you drink? Do you drink a fair bit? In context, obviously, in proportion to everything else. Yes, definitely. As I say, you know, whether it's Franschhoek, Swatland, or Constantia or Elan, the, the wines are immensely rewarding. I mean, Fergewegen, Wine Mag's Winery of the Year last year, their same one from Somerset West was best niche white. I think, I think it makes fabulous wine, but it's, it's destined to always be niche, sadly. The Rhone variety is immensely promising. So Grenache Blanc, Roussin, Marsan. Um, I think so far I think they work better in tend to work better in blend. Vionia. Vionia. Not not <laughs> <laughs> Appa apparently it's getting better it's unfortunate that the listeners couldn't see your face when I said that word <laughs> <laughs> apparently some of my colleagues think that it's getting better well yes. they can keep on retreat for now <laughs> tell me when, when it's really worth drinking so you don't drink a lot of Viognier no I don't drink a lot of Viognier no, there's life's too short so don't send don't send Christian needs any Viognier so <laughs> no. it's going to be uh... no, that said I really don't mind <laughs> I, I really don't mind it in a blend yes. I, I think okay. it works it works really hard in a blend and especially at at a, a lower percentage. I'm, I'm not a good enough taster to go to say that a 5% Viognier addition to a white blend is ruining it because it's mm -hmm. just all blousy and, and peachy. And, um, so yeah, I think uh, Viognier's got a role. I personally um, drunk uh, 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 my fair share of country. I, I, the grape I just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. There's IPA and gin and tonic if you're thirsty. Yeah, Marsan, Roussin, Grenache Blanc. There's some interesting single variety takes on those. I mean, obviously, Marsan's a very, very new variety, yeah. so there's very few of the yeah, examples of those. Plant, plant, plantings are, are, money, are really money. But Grenache Blanc seems to have uh, sort of poked its head above yeah. the others as, a, as an alternative almost to, to Viognier, as the, as the other Rhone sort of one that works. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think that's spot on. And I think it's all, all three varieties seem to like South African grain conditions, and I think we should persist. Do we make enough? Of any of them, do we um, have we worked long enough with it to be confident that we are now making wines that will rock the world? Mm, I don't know. And so, when you review a Roussin or a Grenache Blanc or you know a Rhone-ish style blend, obviously there's usually a, a big chunk of um, Chenin in, the, in these wines. Readers-wise, on the wine mag point of view, do they get traction on the website? Or is it mostly the, the straight chains that sort of shoot the lights out? We, they're super geeky. You know, they're, okay. they're, they're objects of curiosity. And, and that's no reason not to carry on making them. But I mean, I wouldn't, if I was sitting out as a young winemaker to make my name, I'm not sure I'd back single variety Roussin as, as the great to do it. Yeah, but you, you'd rather roll the dice with Shannon and compete, Def, with, compete with 50 others. Yes. And, and because we're starting to, we're not starting to, we have taken ownership of the category. I, mm. I, had, a, I had an epiphanal experience in Austria two or three or four years ago. You don't go to an Austrian seller and ask them why they make five different Grüner Weltliners. That's just, that's what they do. When I last checked, Austria and Grüner Weltliner were doing okay. Palmino and Greek whites and uh, other things that are being... So, so I mean, Palmino's been overseas here for a long time, but you know, always in the background, mostly up on the West Coast and out of the way of the eyes of the industry up until recently. Yeah, uh, so on one level, the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would, I'd hate the national venue to become uh, too narrow. I think we're compelled to, to experiment. I mean, global um, climate change, global warming looms large. You know, late ripening varieties like Cab are, must be compromised or must be, um, I mean, I think Cab will always be with us, but 
you know, in terms of uh, the 90,000 hectares currently uh, under cultivation, I think within our lifetimes we're going to see a shift. Is Assertico, for instance, the game changer? Uh, yeah, uh, it's, you know, time alone will tell. Um, mm. There's been a resurgence, I've noticed, of um, columbard, or uh, uh, not resurgence, but a, an a, a, a assurgence of single varietal columbard. There's some Veladolos out there as well, some... What's so so I would say, when it comes to columbard, which is our second most widely mm. planted variety... But, I mean, to be honest, not a lot of it ends up in wine. It was... Precisely. Well, well, Labelled <laughs> as columbard. I've, I've seen. Precisely. I've seen a few of these. I mean, obviously, it's still a tiny amount of bottled premium wine, but it's enough that people are talking about it. And, and you know, some of your well, columnists, uh, Greg well, Sherwood, well, for example, and I think there's an obsession with the new or, yeah. or, or bringing back the old, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, when it comes to columbard. I certainly don't want to discourage anybody from making a top-end example. But what I've tasted so far, I would urge caution. Columbard's been around for a very long time in South Africa, and it's it served its purpose as a as a, a, a grape for distilling purposes. And um, why now do we think otherwise? And then you can hold up Shannon, which Shannon's pedigree in the Loire is well established. Columbard, not so much. Yeah, name the name the top five Columbards of the world. It's not going to be a very long conversation, no. is it? Yeah. But it, yeah, it make, can make delicious wine. There's yeah. no, no doubt about that. So that's pretty much whites. Should we head on to reds or do you want to do bubbles first? Can do bubbles? Okay. MCC versus Petnat versus not MCC, just sparkling wine. So MCC is uh, traditionally produced, a traditional Bottle method. Uh, yeah, sparkling wine. Um, um, and, and rebranded as Cup to seek according to the official Cup to seek association. Yes. So, but, but there's still a lot of brands out there who yeah, still call it MCC. So Cup to seek phenomenally successful as a category. Every winery seems to have one because it's so easy to serve at 25th and weddings. And arrival when they come to the winery. And, and arrival when they come to the winery. I, I think it's a massively technically demanding category to make well. And, and I think our top practitioners make a serious stuff. But then I think there's a huge swathe of mediocrity. To some extent, it succeeds because who doesn't like bubbles? Um, Again, it's usually so pretty cold as well. Out of a flute, we're not really necessarily tasting a whole bunch of the wine, and and the critical assessment's pretty low in ge- in general consumption. Yeah, yeah, and, and in fact, I'm going to stick my neck out here and say, out of all the categories, white, red, sweet, fortified, I, I don't think I encounter more faulty wines than I do. Technically faulty, like okay. oxidized, or whatever the case may be, as I do when it comes to capricity. Oh, really? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So technical deficiency, you think there, or yeah. is it just trying to aim at a price point? No, guys, with, flying with, by the seat of their pants. Yeah. You know, right. you, know you know, I mean, you know, there are two fermentations. There's disgorgement. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many stages where it can go wrong. You know, yeah. You know, I mean, Shannon, <laughs> to some extent, the reason Shannon succeeds is you, 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 know, you, you source a decent vineyard, you chuck it in an old barrel and you leave it for 10 months and if you, if you screwed it up after that, then God help you, you know? And South Africa is not that tough a place to grow vines. Uh, well, the Western Cape at least. Yeah. Um, that's, an, that's another, I mean, yeah. Peter Ferreira, the doyen of, of the industry, um, you know, always says, like, we, we are never gonna have the acidities that, that even close to the acidities that champagne gets. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you've, you're starting with one hand tied behind your back. Mm. Not to say you can't, you can't make a decent, yeah. ultimately make a decent product, but 
you know, if champagne is the benchmark, and I think it has to be, then yes. you know, we're, we're always going to be up against it. Um, so that's MCC, and what about Petnat? Have uh, that's so, so been Pet, a bit of a Pet, rise Pet, of those? Petnat is it sort of the, the Colombard of sparkling wines, or no, no, no. Petnat, given the inherent winemaking process, will it ever be a complex beverage? I'm, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Can it be fun to drink? Yes, definitely. We're sitting here in early February. Um, sometimes you just want something cold and, and, and wet, and, and I think Petnat does that job very well. I would caution though that it's it's super trendy and some of the prices are a bit eye-watering. Cold and wet at 300 rand a bottle is a bit cheeky if you ask me. Okay. So it's sort of like a 200? Yeah, I'd of... max out at 200 rand. Okay. No worries. Reds. Cabernet, your favourite red, is it? Out of South Africa, would you say? No, no, no I would. Syrah is, is on fire. Okay, we'll De- start with Syrah then. Yeah, it's, it's such an exciting category. It's... Swatland set the standard. There's some forward-thinking younger Stellenbosch producers that are rising to the challenge. And there's Malinu Syrahs, the Post Lamberg Syrah, but there's not a lot of other straight no. Syrahs out of the Swatland. A lot of them are in blends, aren't they? Is no, good, good, good point. Yeah. But but I, I think you know. I mean, let's take even Saudi. We owe so much to the man. Colimel is now twenty something years old. Well, you know, the its existence as a as a as a cuvee. As a label, yeah. And and you know, it was premised on Sarah, whatever Eben. I mean, Eben sort of now says he's not convinced of the merits of Sarah. The goal the goalposts have been. You know, yeah. in Eben's mind if nowhere else. But you know, Colimel arrived on the scene, it was Sarah was a really important component of it and made it everybody sort of relook the variety. You know, and then along came Chris and Andrew Malinu, along came Kali, Loa, and Paul Salenberg. You know, you've got Donovan Roll and, and, and Ava right now, which has got to be one of the very best red wines coming out of the country, even though it's relatively short-lived. As in short-lived brand, not, not necessarily in short-lived in bottle. Yeah, no, but yeah. Yeah, the brand, um, it's only two or three vintages as well. Huh? The Ava, yeah. yeah. The Swatland made everybody reconsider how important Syrah could be for South Africa. Not to say that Stellenbosch wasn't making it, but Stellenbosch was making it in a very Barossa-esque style, which is to say, picked fully ripe, fairly heavily worked in the cellar. And again, I'm not saying that's an illegitimate style, but I think where discerning wine drinkers are at is at a much more Rhone. You know, Rhone is much more the reference point. And again, what's, what's really fascinating is it's, You've got to include Elam in this discussion. Trezon, um, Signature um, Wines is, is a leading practitioner, but there's also the Grendel, to name but one other. And I own and make a fantastic one out of Elgin, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, under the Solace label. So it's quite interesting for me when a great starts working across multiple uh, regions. Yeah, um, I mean, Botriva with Tobioscliff and, and Luddite. You know, can't be ignored either. Um, yeah. so it goes towards a sort of a, a versatility and a, and a compatibility with the with overall South African growing experience, mm. I, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just super, super exciting, yeah. you know, it, it, and it, it makes wines that are simultaneously d- delicious and Moorish, but equally worthy of contemplation. And I can't recommend them highly enough. So the shannon of the, the red. In a way. In a way. If you can find value in great wines at all price points. Correct. Yeah. Um, Cabernet and Bordeaux blends and, and Cabernet Franc. I don't know if you want to do, deal with those separately or together. Or? No, I think they are intimately related. I, I think Cab is, to my mind, the most famous red variety of them all. 
um, thanks to Bordeaux, thanks to Napa, and and um, you know, and Oz has only added to that. Um, you've got to take cab seriously. I like drinking it. I'm, I've always found laughing in Cabernet um, um, convincing. Right back to Niederberg '74 GS66. You know, it's, it's, we've got a proven track record with it. The world wants it, and I think. Because it's cab, it's probably the category that's least open to innovation. But that said, I think that we are, thanks to the developments in Shiraz and Slash Syrah, there's been a there's been some refinements in the lo- in the last while, and and uh, you know a less aggressive approach to hard streeted in the cellar essentially, which is, and, but, but without stepping back, I mean cab cab is the one great that allows you know where big works you know mm-hmm. you know so so you know the wines certainly aren't becoming too thin or underdone just more refined better fruit expression better talent management and so it can only be good um, a little bit like Pinot Noir it seems that it's restricted to certain regions at the high, at the top end would that be a fair comment I, I think I think Selimosh pretty much owns it and, um, yes there are some French producers who are attempting it Constantia. But essentially, French looks on a, on a different side of the hill. <laughs> yeah, too. Could, I mean, it's not like could, they're yeah. disparate. Uh, I always used to say, Selenbush had all the vineyards and French had all the restaurants. Now Selenbush has got some decent restaurants too. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, French needs a leg up. Semillon will save it. Semillon will save it. Mm. Unfortunately, all the French Oak goes out of the valley, um, or a large part of it. I wouldn't want to write off, you know, we, we, we bunched. Uh, Cape Bordeaux red with cab and, and I mean I was going to ask you well maybe chat to us about uh, Bordeaux blends Bordeaux style blends in, in the South African context is it, is it a wide escape obviously there's maybe some uh, Constantia yeah uh, and, you know, I was going to say you can't you can't leave Constantia entirely out of the conversation mm. and then you've got Constantia Glen you've got Correct Constantia um, they need to spring to mind and you know, you know make, make, make serious uh, red blends mm. um, and I think by blending, it becomes possible. You're not so reliant on cab, and cab seems to be at its very best in in Sonnenbosch. And Bordeaux blends. Uh, what's the? Are they the better wine overall? I mean, so Bordeaux blends. It's, it's curious to me. It's like you know, you know why, why, why are we enthralled to Bordeaux in the first first place? Mm. You know, we. We've, we've, we've usurped the title of the world's best Chenin producer from the Loire. You know, we p- proudly insist that Pinotage is a world, world-class grape. I will get there. Right. And then it comes to our premium red blends and we name them after water. Uh, curious to me. And, and, and then you can only use the five Bordeaux varieties. To a large part, I think the answer to all of that is that that's what the market wants and that's what the market's prepared to pay for. Mm. So you can sell Villafonte, Paul Sauer, Etc. At a, at a at a premium, and, and you know those are the rules of engagement. They're probably not going to change anytime soon. All that said, the wines are bloody impressive. You know, you 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 forget about the critics. The market wouldn't uh, tolerate the the prices that are being asked if they went went up to standard. But equally as sort of reliant on tradition and know-how and technical prowess in the cellar as Cabernet, or are people getting a little bit more, you know, there's people throwing some more Cinso in these blends more and yeah. more, you know, harking back to the days of old, which from all I've read is not necessarily, maybe not true, it's more of a, 
uh, hearsay maybe um, how much Sinsone stuff was around and how much of it ended up in the wines we you know uh, putting up on pedestals in the past what's your take on, on, on so, that so, sort of style of Cabernet blends out of so let's call them for one of the longest one. question in the world sorry <laughs> for, for one of the better where of terming them you know South African reds or traditional South African reds and there we're referencing Chateau Libertas and Rodeburg of old you know circa uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And there are a few producers, um, Malinu Dry Red is a prominent example, that are deliberately trying to emulate, re- recreate those wines. I don't think it's a bad idea. Pay homage to maybe. Homage rather than sort of, I don't think they're trying to recreate them in terms of as a, you know, here's the recipe. Or, we'll, no, indeed. Yeah. Well, and as you said, the actual recipe, the recipe in inverted commas, is sort of shrouded in mystery. Well, there's plenty of speculation about what made those wines so good. There's an interesting lack of any documentation, isn't there? Like, <laughs> whether that was a deliberate aim to, you know, because they didn't really want it out there in terms of what they, what they were telling people wasn't actually what they were doing, or no, no, so it was just, I, I think it's less, it was just so ubiquitous that everyone knew I mean, it anyway. Occam's Razor, Occam's Razor, less obfuscation and more simply flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah. <laughs> just chuck together whatever was at hand. Yeah, yeah. A bit of Pontac, a bit of... Yeah. But I th- let's just be clear, that we shouldn't conflate, in my mind at least, mm. uh, there's the very strict Bordeaux tradition, and then there's a cab-driven red blend, or cab, a red blend that includes cab, that becomes much more sui generi, if you will. You know? um, Jocelyn Hogan's divergence references Chateau Moussard, and that's interesting to consider. But as I say, you, you know, in, if we're have this conversation Old Chateau Lib and Old Rodeburg probably be part of you know part of it. You know what role does Sinso and, and very often Shiraz play in these wines, and it's fascinating to watch it play out. We've got these old wines that have stood the test of time, so that's one huge endorsement. But also they taste really interesting and, mm. and unusual in the best sense. But all, all that said, I'm I'm not convinced that the market, given the choice between. Canon called Pulsar, which is strictly Bordeaux, versus a South African blend made by no lesser winemaker than Andrea Maloney, I would, I would urge consumers to be as open-minded as possible. Mm. What I'm saying is that when it comes to, you know, as we see a secondary markets and auctions emerging, there's much more inherent value locked up in traditional Bordeaux style than I would think at this stage there is in trying to do a, a an proprietorial style. An off-piste Cabernet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Cabernet Franc as a, a single variety. Um, I've seen a few of these popping up. Uh, yeah. Obviously, Breverats was probably, the, in my mind, the leading proponent for a long time. Now you've got Lucas van Lockerenberg and Tybosch. Obviously, Crescendo was a bit of a cult wine in its day. Is there a resurgence there? No, so I think Cab Franc is super trendy, and that's the wines are promising, and good luck to all the producers that you've mentioned. And I think that they're sounds like you're keeping your powder dry on this no, one. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I mean, I mean, it's, it's verdicts out. I mean, I, I, okay. I, I, in terms of keeping my own center, I wouldn't be going long from anybody. I mean, it's mm. it's when you're in the mood for it, it makes for lovely drinking, you know. And whatever the style, you know, there's a more traditional Bordeaux style, and then there's the Loire. You know, people reference the Loire. They. Are, are very satisfying wines, but mm. I guess ultimately I feel it works better in a blend. So then, good luck, Thai Bosch. Yeah, I have this sort of um, 
theory that it's like the semion of the red varieties. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> it's like no, that's super not, geeky and super interesting. That's not a bad trip. It's because we could, and you know, it can drink very weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Whoever the producer is. Yeah. Um, but do you think do you think South Africa needs more Cabernet Franc? Um, do you think it's a, a variety that people should be exploring more and going deeper into? I think it's probably in a good place right now. Okay. We've got some pretty good producers working with it. Plantings yeah. are, are small, but not minute. I would be slightly taken aback if they sort of doubled or tripled in the next five years. Yeah, yeah, right. Pinotage, we've come to there. <laughs> or should we, should we go to Sinsay first? Sinsay, and I would, for convenience sake, bundle it with Grenache Noir. Uh, okay, if you'd like. Yeah. Because I think they're both chasing the same, more or less the same market segment in that they make I see. lighter bodied reds and I think there's a yeah. big demand for that. Yeah. Or, or a new, it's interesting to say lighter bodies. I mean, Southern Rhone Grenaches aren't necessarily no, the, no, that's a, that's the, a, that's the lightest a, bodied or, 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 on the old... Or, or old know, vine like, Spanish Grenache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty um, comes to mind that's ma- does not make uh, yeah. light, but in a, it manifests in South Africa. Whereas Sinso absolutely does. Yeah, yeah. So, but the curious thing is to date, even even off the old vines of the Swatlands, the Grenache is is hardly the biggest wine coming out of South Africa, and yet liked by critics and public alike. Mm. Um, but isn't that because of the the, the clone that was planted? It was the, there was one clone available, and it was sort of a more of a clone about uh, yield rather than uh, quality back back then. So. Or with the new clones coming in, they're going to be darker wines of more substance, perhaps. Perhaps. That's, that's, as I understand it, yeah. that's, that's, yeah. the, that's uh, why uh, it only works, or well, one of the reasons why it uh, works as the vines get older, because that sort of concentrates from a point of dilution, so it, it concentrates into a, something that's inherently sort of light to medium bodied, rather than concentrating from light to medium into full bodied as the vines get older. Suffice to say, I think they're both popular categories within a certain market segment. I mean, they are wine bar wines, if you will, and with respect to some of the very serious producers working with them. I think we can agree, sorry, just yeah. to interrupt, that there are serious producers and examples of all of these varieties that are top-end desirable wines, but we're talking uh, In more broad terms. spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just think that they're... Work in progress. Is it worth getting terribly excited about either of them? Not I'm, yet. I'm not sure. Not yet. Yeah. Do I enjoy drinking them? Absolutely enjoy drinking them. Okay. So, you know, as I say, work in progress. But it sounds like you're framing them in a price point. Yeah, that as well. Because the, the enjoyment factor isn't at Cabernet or Syrah level in a South African sense. And Pinotage? <laughs> Pinotage. Um, always controversial. Is it going away? Of course it's not. Again, the stylistic division is stark. So you've got some very big, deep, heavy reds, uh, red wines made from it, from well-established producers with very loyal followings that sell at a huge premium. And um, good luck to them. Despite the decline in Robert Parker's influence, there are always going to be people who want to drink the biggest possible red wine they can get their hands on. Um, and so Pinotage is the, the go-to, you think? Or is it just... Well, it's it's, certainly, one of, it's certainly one of the go-to. Or would it be fair to say... But there's no real, uh, I mean, there's obviously a playbook for Cabernet, there's, uh, there's a playbook more or less for Chardonnay, but there's no play for Pinotage. I mean, you can, so it, it is the candidate, well, we don't know what to do with it, so we might as well make it in this style because we think that's what the market wants. To some extent, what you said is, is valid, but I think it's more complicated than that, in that Canon Corp, supposedly South Africa's first growth, 
Would you agree that? Just both yes, to an extent that it's meaningful at all. Yeah, I but mean, if you had to pick one, that would be your no, I'm, choice. Well, I'm, I'm, sorry, sorry to get off the, off the topic here, but it's an interesting... It is interesting, and I think, actually, thankfully, we don't have a, a formal rating. First, uh, first in no, among I mean, years or anything like that. I mean, you know, long, long may the, the state of flux and um, fluidity that, that's characterised mm. African wine apply. Yeah, um, okay. Sorry, I really interrupted. Can I cut in a under Bear's Tutor, in the, in the mid-90s, they, they enjoyed incredible success with it, made in a particular way. You know, not, not that the rest of the world necessarily knows this, but that became something of the benchmark. And Knorkorp's just ridden that wave you know, um, ever since. Um, and, and, and has got a half a dozen, maybe a dozen other sellers that stick rigidly to, to, to that style. And the wines are, as I say, in a very particular idiom, put personal prejudice aside, you've got to recognize why they're successful. A recent development that's very exciting is, for want of a better way of putting it, is, is a new wave, Pinotage, where we're seeing earlier picks, carbonic maceration, just more gentle handling, less use of oak, and then it makes a sometimes very pretty lighter red, and not necessarily that simple. I mean, and again, you have to reference somebody like um, Brevere Rats, who he makes Liberté under his B. Vintners label. Um, you know, that's just a t- t- terrific one by any measure. You know, it's not a... Well, Gavin as well. Obviously. And Gavin, yeah. and Gavin Southern, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, Pinotage is a, is a curious one um, for me, not growing up with it and then arriving here nine years ago now. I had my ninth year anniversary um, last week. Congratulations. Or commiserations, which are away <laughs> for, for, for the rest of South Africa. Um, <laughs> uh, it has this... Um, like sour fruit profile, which I really like, which obviously that can sort of leach into VA pretty quickly, but it's it certainly has it in its nature to have this sort of to say sour fruit profile when it's in that lighter sense. Yeah, I'd go further and say, to my mind, however you make pinotage, its greatest asset is its is its generosity of fruit. So to go and clobber that with oak, and and in passing, we need to reference the phenomenon of chocolate slash coffee flavored Pinotage, which was a huge commercial success, but I don't think it really took the category forward. And luckily that's not exactly died out, but it's less of a... How many of those do you see a year? Well, Decanter magazine has just given a 95 point score to Darling Sellers Chocoholic Pinotage. Yeah, right. So it's, it is still around. And not to say you can't do it well, but I mean, I think we're both agreeing is that you're seeing less and less is my, my question. No, no, it's definitely slower on. I, yeah. I, I think what's encouraging is that we are seeing wherever they sit on the stylistic spectrum, letting the fruit shine. You know, yeah. that's got to be the, the way forward for Pinotage. Any other red varieties on your radar that, um, that worthy of a mention? And we haven't mentioned Merlot, have we? Well, no, we've sort of mentioned it in Bordeaux and then we didn't speak about it at, at all. We well, I mean, of... I mean, I guess we have to mention Merlot because when... It's uh, you know the the most popular single rifle red in the country. Um, Is it still? Yeah. Okay. Um, by bottles sold or by bottles sold. Liters sold. By liters sold. And globally, it's you know it's always jostling with Cabernet for most widely planted. But. It's bloody difficult to do all in South Africa. I mean, your website is everything about fine wine in South Africa. Is Merlot in that discussion? Again, certain one or two wines like you know the Shannon. No, on the whole, Merlot isn't. It's made for a supermarket consumer. Not to be rude to supermarket consumers, but mm. you know, i.e., there are not many producers trying to get over 150 on a bottle. Yeah, 
we mentioned competition before in terms of producers and you know the rising tide of uh, lifts all boats in that sort of sense. There's also competition in wine journalism, I suppose, and you being one of the most important voices in South African wine journalism uh, and wine reviewing, not only wine journalism, but actually reviewing in terms of uh, generating points and scores and things like that. So the other two that come to mind would be Platters, obviously a long-standing wine guide that's run internally, and then Tim Atkins taking it upon himself to talk more about South Africa and releases a special report every year. What's your... What's your take on... on uh, Inevitably, I'm going to be discreet, but I don't think we can ignore the issue. Um, Are there any others that I've not mentioned? No, so, so first, first I would say I think, I think the state of wine writing is, is not as healthy as it could be, but I mean, that's a global phenomenon. Um, I mean, it seems like a race to give high scores at some point. Yes, yeah. the metastasis of the 100-point scoring system means that consumers like it and want it. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I'm not saying it's not commercially viable, for sure not. Necessary evil. Can we leave it at that? Good uh, use of the word metastasis, though. Thanks. Um, <laughs> um, I did do uh, uh, f- first year English at university. Um, well, any use of that word is probably um, <laughs> worthy of uh, applause. <laughs> I, also, I also like askew. I got askew in a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Platters, I mean, owned the, owned the landscape for a long time. I mean, when I first moved here, Platters was it. And there was a few other competitions that, that mattered, Old Mutual being one. But Platters was by far the most comprehensive and the one that most people spoke about in terms of being the benchmark for the industry within South Africa. So I think comprehen- being comprehensive, comprehension, being able to, comprehension is also important, is going to be become increasingly less important, rightly or wrongly. And what I, what I see happening is that it's almost practically impossible to get to everybody because of how fast-moving and equally fragmented the South African wine industry is. And then there are some producers who don't want to be rated at all and yeah. other producers who trust X but not Y. So being comprehensive, it's mm. just not going to be, as I say, rightly or wrongly, it's not going to be a factor anymore. But what should people be uh, buying? What's the, what's no, the just keep experimenting. Don't get okay. stuck in a rut. You know, think different. What are you most optimistic about uh, in South African wine at the moment? I guess as with all the South Africans, right-thinking South Africans, not right-wing, um, level-headed, emotionally aware South Africans, it's our never-say-die never attitude. And, I mean, and, then, and that applies specifically and particularly to the South African wine industry, that despite all its structural systemic challenges it prevails and not only prevails seems to go into ever more success and and achievement cool nice one christian eats thank you very much my pleasure thank you for listening and if you found this episode interesting please do share subscribe and listen to past episodes until next time eat drink and be merry